The reading today comes from Acts chapter 9, verse 1 to 19a. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went into the house Oh, went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. joy and a privilege it is to sing of the glory of Christ. This morning, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we've already sung of his mercy. We've sung of his resurrection. Now we sing of his glory. And as we turn now to your word, we see the way that the glory of Christ made a difference in one man's life. And I pray that as we reflect on what he did to this man, Saul, that you may deepen each of our love for the Lord Jesus. And for any that may be here this morning who don't yet follow him, that they may indeed see his glory love him and follow him. And we pray this in his mighty name. Amen. Would you please take a seat? <clears throat> and I hope you've been having a good morning with us so far this morning. Although I must admit, I found the um, Derek Redmond thing a, a two-edged sword. Yes, it was encouraging what happened with him, but all I could think of was I used to finish 400 metre races about the same far amount behind the rest of the runners as Derek Redmond. Where were you, Dad? <laughs> Where was the applause from the audience? <laughs> Happy Father's Day. <dude. coughs> right, a rhetorical question. Uh, don't shout out answers. Who sings the song, Changes? Changes. Uh, I don't want you to uh, answer it out loud because there's lots of different answers to that. 
Your mind may have automatically gone to David Bowie, who sings a very famous song called Changes, but you could have answered it with Black Sabbath. You could have answered it with Tupac. You could have answered, you could have answered it with a whole lot of ways because all these different and distinct artists sing about change, sing specifically about changes. They're all different songs, but with the same theme. You've got the uniqueness of David Bowie, You've got a heavy metal band like Black Sabbath. You've got an American rapper like Tupac, all singing about changes because change is very human. A change, as we know, is one of the hardest aspects of life. If you've read or experienced or, or gone through what the, the key uh, stress causes in life are, they're things like the loss of loved ones or additions to the family or loss of job or moving house. The thing that's in common with all of them is change. Changing uh, appearance when you grow up can be hard. Uh, changing health status as we get older can be difficult. Uh, changing stages of life when you move from employment to retirement or from uh, a child to puberty, all those things can be hard. But necessary, but hard. Of course sometimes it's the thought of no change that can be hard. The thought that we're trapped the way that we are with no escape possible. The thought that there's no light at the end of the tunnel, no let up or no progress possible. A Tupac song is not so much about change happening but it's lamenting the lack of change, particularly in regards to uh, racism. So change is this odd thing, it's necessary in life and yet can be so difficult and yet the thought of no change uh, can be difficult. Today as we begin a new series in the book of Acts, or as we go back to an old series in the book of Acts, we see a man, Saul, experience uh, a complete change. It's not overstating it to say that his life changed 180 degrees, completely the opposite from how he'd been living. We see Saul, who later will become Paul, who most of us have heard of, the Apostle Paul. So forgive me if I sometimes call him Paul, even though he's called Saul here. We will see Paul, Saul... <clears throat> have the direction of his life change radically. We will see him have his life priorities and goals change drastically. And in fact, so fundamental and so sudden is the change that goes on for Saul here that this incident has seeped into our vernacular. It's in our language, it's in our culture. You may have heard the phrase before, uh, having a road to Damascus experience. It's talking about this. People use that phrase to describe a moment when the lights come on, when everything changes suddenly, it all, all happens completely. Well, today we're seeing the original Road to Damascus experience. We're seeing that, where that saying came from. We will see Saul, literally on the road to Damascus, <coughs> have the blinding light, have this 180-degree change and, and turn. And his, and his life direction will go in a way he never would have believed possible. But first, before we uh, examine Saul, let me just set the scene because it's been a long time since we've been uh, in the book of Acts. So let me remind you where we are because we're jumping into it in chapter 9, some way into it. Remember, the book of Acts happens after Jesus. So in the New Testament, you've got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, who tell the story of Jesus' life, tell the story of Jesus' death, and then his resurrection. And Jesus <clears throat> had taught in incredible ways, done unbelievable things, but then dies on the cross. He then, three days later, rises, 
And he then, 40 days after that, ascends to be back with the Father. So Jesus has finished. Acts tells the story of how the good news of Jesus spreads after his ascension. How the world that you and I live in now became that world which is dominated by Jesus with Christmas and Easter and his birth being the dating system that the planet's based on and those sorts of things. Acts tells the story of how the good news of Jesus went out. And in our first study from the book of Acts, which was almost a year ago to the day, I looked it up uh, yesterday, I said that the emphasis on the book is on the ministry of Jesus continuing. So either, even though he's not here physically, the ministry of Jesus continues through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the book of Acts tells the story of. These apostles, the disciples of Jesus, people who'd been with him, who knew who he was and what he'd done on the cross, who'd seen him defeat death and rise, these apostles are going out and telling other people, you need to love and follow Jesus. They often risk their own life to go out there and say, this is the Jesus you need to know about and follow and trust. But they weren't doing this alone we see God by his spirit working in them and through them all the way through. And so the ministry of Jesus is continuing through these apostles who are empowered by God's spirit. And you see the world changing. It's a, a hugely encouraging book, the book of Acts. But it's not without its problems. And so in Acts, although we've seen the gospel start to go out, we've also seen opposition to Jesus and Jesus' followers also rise. And some of you may remember in chapter 8, the chapter we got to before we had a, a, a long break, we saw Stephen, Stephen who our church here is named after, become the first martyr, the first person to lose their life because they stood, loved and followed Jesus. Well, it was at the stoning of Stephen that we were first introduced to a man named Saul, the man that our passage is about today. Let me remind you what was said about Saul in chapter 8, because it's very helpful for us as we move to chapter 9. In chapter 8 it said this, And Saul was there giving approval of Stephen's death. Then it goes on, But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. This is a guy who's serious about his hatred for Jesus and Christians and the church. He had huge opposition to Christianity. The word there used for destroy is a word not used anywhere else in the New Testament, but it is used in one place in the Old Testament, which is Psalm 80. And the word means, it gives the, the uh, description of a wild boar devastating a vineyard. So there's almost an animalistic element to Saul's actions that we're supposed to see from chapter 8. And he's, he begins to destroy like a wild boar devastating the vineyard. He's going from house to house, dragging. The, 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 the word and the imagery is important. Throwing them into prison. So what I want us to do then is to work through our verses this morning, verses 1 through to 19. Uh, <clears throat> we'll see what we see. And then there's two things at the end I'd like us to focus on. We'll have a look at verse 1. <clears throat> we can see that Saul is still the same as he was in chapter 8. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. 
I like the phrase there, who belong to the way. That's obviously the way they were talking about Christians, following the one who is the way, the truth and the life. Notice, though, from those verses other things. Saul's taking the initiative. It's not that he's just a, a foot soldier being told what to do. No, 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 he, he takes the deliberate action. He goes to the high priest himself. He wants to do this. This is something he wants to be part of and get done. And what is it that he wants to get done? He wants now to travel to persecute Christians. He's committed. It's not just enough to get the Christians in the locality of where he is, and Jerusalem was a, a fairly significant place at that time. He wants to go everywhere and get rid of Christians and to drag them back to Jerusalem. He's relentless. He wanted to wipe out Christians, the followers of Jesus. He was absolutely committed to this in his life. I don't know about you, but I think this is a pretty modern, I think of it as a, a modern attitude. I am surprised, talk to me about this afterwards if you disagree, but I'm surprised and saddened today to see how often people don't just stand for something but against something. You see it in politics all the time at the moment. You know, I lean right politically, so I hate the left. Or I, I'm on the left politically, so we want to stamp out the right. There seems to be so little fruitful discussion nowadays about the strengths and weaknesses of different positions. We just, we just hate the other. Uh, so little bipartisanship because we're just against uh, the other. Sa same with political leaders. See, very little good discussion on, well, they're strong in this area, but they're a bit foolish over here. No, we just hate them or we love them. It's this kind of uh, fully in or fully against. Well, this is Saul. He's a Jew by birthright. He's a Roman by citizenship. He's a Pharisee according to religion, but by conviction, he's against Christians. By conviction, he's against Jesus and the growth of the church. He's after the punishment, the persecution, the elimination of Christians. And so he heads to Damascus. Even that tells you how committed he is. Damascus was 150 miles away from uh, Jerusalem, which in those days is about a week's trip. He's going to take a week's journey to do another week's journey back with the prisoners he gets from there. Now, uh, on this journey that everything happens, on, literally on the road to Damascus, verse 3 tells us that a suddenly a light from heaven flashes around him. Now, I want to break for a moment here just to tell you that the conversion of Paul that we saw, that we're reading about here, is so important in the book of Acts, it comes up three times. So we read about it here as the event happens in chapter 9, but then later on in the book in chapter 22 and chapter 26, Paul, we find Paul telling other people about this day, telling other people about what happened to him. And if you read chapter 22 and 26, we get a few extra details that we don't have here in chapter 9. One of them I think is important here. In chapter 22 and 26, Paul tells us that this flashing light happened at noon as he was walking on the road. I always think that's interesting because it happened at the time when you would expect the sun to be kind of blazing at its brightest. And yet so bright is the light from heaven, that's what he sees. And it knocks him down, we're told. Saul falls to the ground and a voice says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now a few things to notice here. Interesting, isn't it, that Jesus says, why do you persecute me? 
and he says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Saul hasn't actually been persecuting Jesus. He's been persecuting Christians. And yet Jesus says it's about him. We'll come back to that and think about that because it's interesting uh, in a few moments. Also, I want to point out here uh, that we know from other places that Saul didn't just hear the voice of Jesus here. He saw him. He saw the resurrected, ascended Jesus. Uh, Verse 7, if you look at that, hints at that, where it reveals that the others with Saul at this point didn't see anyone, giving the implication that Saul did. But by verse 17, it's very clear. By verse 17, when Ananias uh, uh, comes to see Saul, he says, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here. And when you read other uh, letters in the New Testament, Paul talks about seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's very important because it's part of his qualification of being an apostle. The apostles were eyewitnesses of the risen Lord Jesus. This is where it happened for Saul, soon to become Paul. So Saul sees and hears from Jesus here in these verses. Think about that for a moment. The Jesus that he, that he had seen as a, a fraud, the Jesus that he up until this point had seen as a fake, the Jesus that up until this point he'd seen as a joke, he now sees with his own eyes and hears with his own ears. So Saul gets up in verse 8. But when he opens his eyes, he can no longer see. And so instead of entering Damascus, as was the plan, as some kind of warrior throwing fear into the heart of all the Christians who live there, he actually has to get led by the hand by others into the city. A fairly kind of, uh, he's blind, powerless, almost pitiful. And upon entering, we're told he begins to fast. Well, then in verse 10, we meet a new character, this man named Ananias. I think Ananias is one of the unsung heroes of the New Testament. I love Ananias. The Lord calls to him in a vision. At first, it's not clear who's speaking to Ananias, but again in verse 17, uh, Ananias makes clear when he speaks to Saul, it was Jesus who was speaking to him. So here in verse 11, it's Jesus speaking to Ananias. And he says, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. They tell me Straight Street's still there uh, in Damascus. And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. There's an encouragement. Saul is now praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Well, Ananias immediately replies, replies, as you might imagine he he would. Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he's done to your servants in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on his name. Do you see what Ananias is saying here? I like to think that what Ananias actually said was, sorry, Lord, I thought you said Saul from Tarsus for a moment. (laughs) Imagine if you had said Saul from Tarsus. You mean Saul from Tarsus? That's what he's thinking. It was unthinkable for Ananias that the Lord would be doing anything with this man. That the Lord could do anything in this man. But Jesus goes on to explain that Saul is his chosen instrument. Verse 15, it is Saul who will share the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles and to the kings of Gentiles and to the Jews. Now, he also says that Saul will suffer in his life as well. But Saul will be his chosen instrument. This this man will become Paul. And the rest of the book of Acts backs this up. 
And the rest of the Bible backs this up. When you read all the letters written by Paul, and I'll go further, the rest of the history of the world backs up what God says about Saul here. Because this man will become Paul, he will devote his life to, to the saviour that he loved, and he will go round sharing the good news of that saviour to the world around him, and he changes the history of the world. In, in Michael Hart's book, on the most influential people who've ever lived. You may have either read it or, or heard about it because it was quite controversial. It was controversial because Jesus only came in at number three and Muhammad came in at number one. And what the main reason that Hart gives for putting Muhammad one and Jesus down further is because he says Muhammad was more directly responsible for the spread of Islam than Jesus. Because Jesus didn't spread Christianity, he says. Who did? Paul. In fact, Michael Hart does quite a good argument. He puts Paul at number six on the most influential people in the whole history of the world because he says it was Paul who took the gospel out and changed the world. So he brings Jesus down. Now, Michael Hart is nonsense in terms of the underplaying Jesus. That's ridiculous, but he gets the importance of Paul bang on. I might put him a little higher than six, but he get, do you see the point of what he, what he does? Because this man, under the power of the Spirit, more than arguably any other human not called Jesus, did more for gospel ministry and changing lives and the spread of the good news than anyone else. Well, this is the moment the change to him happened. On this road, this is where he started to believe and trust and love and follow. Well, Ananias has just been told, don't worry, you may have other thoughts about this man, but this is the man that I'm going to use. So Ananias goes into the house, speaks to Saul. We're told that something like scales fell from his eyes. He can see again. He gets baptized. He gets a feed and he regains his strength. Saul in this passage is converted. He is now the Lord's. Now, there's no doubt that Saul's conversion here in many ways is unique as you would expect from the one who's going to be his chosen instrument to the, the Gentiles and the Gentiles kings and the, and the Jews. So not many of us will get the blinding light. Not many of us will get the meeting with the resurrected, ascended Jesus Christ. But before we finish this morning, I want to draw out two aspects which happened to Saul that are the experience for every Christian. If you're here today as a Christian... These two things have happened to you and should happen to you and will continue to happen to you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, they can happen to you. What are the two aspects? The first one is God changes us. God changes us. <clears throat> a number of years ago, I was reading some um, daily Bible reading notes on this passage. You know, the kind of daily Bible reading books that you can get where it's got a little passage that you read then a few notes of information or um, exhortation or inspiration and then there's quite often an action for the day based on it and it was on this passage <clears throat> and the take home message on this passage was that we should be ready to listen out for God because he may speak to us like he did with Saul and the action uh, put after it was you should be ready to pick up the phone just in case the Lord rings. Now, what do you think about that as an action from this passage? I think it's a good action to have, I, nothing against the action, but I don't think that was the key message from here. I don't think Saul was heading to Damascus going, I should be ready to pick up the phone if Jesus rings. That's not what was going on. 
Saul wasn't heading to Damascus, I don't think, going, I wonder if the old blinding light routine is going to happen and I should be prepared. Now the key thing is God worked on him. God brought about a change on him and in him. And that is what happens to every, per, every Christian. Jesus spoke of being a Christian as being born again. You cannot birth yourself. The Lord needs to do it for us. The, 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 the Bible talks about Christians having new hearts. You can't give yourself a new heart. God needs to do it for us. You and I need those things as Christians, new life, new birth, new heart. It's God who does that work in us. Sometimes that comes right out of the blue, totally unexpected, like with Saul. I don't think he was expecting it as he walked down that road to Damascus. But for others of us, it may come after we've been thinking about this for a while. As we've been wrestling with, well, I, I, I've been hearing about this Jesus, but I'm not yet sure. And then, but then he does that work in us. Or it may come after we've prayed, Lord, open my eyes, open my heart, and then he does it. And the great news is that anyone who ever calls out to the Lord to do that, the Lord does it. He does that work in us. The Lord brings change. God changes us. That's so important to know. And he goes on changing us. Do you know that? That the Christian life is all about God changing us. It's new birth to become a Christian. It's sanctification as we go on as a Christian. What's sanctification? It's just making us more like Jesus. But that's changing us. The Lord will continue to change you and I. We need to know that. There are times in life when it can feel like there is no light anymore. That there's no way forward. There's no hope. We're seeing this, I think, more and more in our society. It was only last week, wasn't it, again, we saw another kind of well-known New Zealander take their own life. Uh, and I take it in part that was because there was a feeling there was no hope. And that's being represented, I think, of so many, the way so many people are feeling today. If it was just up to you and I, people, that might be true. But God changes lives. He works within people. If you're here this morning and wondering you know, what the way forward is or where you stand with the Lord, follow him and let him change you. Ask him to change you and, allow, and work with him as he changes you. Pray that he'll do his work of changing you. Come and see me afterwards. We'll talk about it. There is hope. Change is possible. And it's not self-help hope where you kind of, I may muck it up in the end. No, God does this work. He does it with us, but he'll get it done even if I muck things up. That's the encouragement. And of course, <clears throat> I don't want you to miss this morning how encouraging this passage is for all of us who've got loved ones who don't yet know the Lord. God changes hearts and lives. People we care for deeply who may seem from a human perspective to be so far from the Lord so anti, so against, that they could never bow the knee, never come to love, never come to trust. Do you think they're further than Saul from Tarsus? Do you think they're further from the one who used to go out and destroy the church, dragging men and women out, Christians, to throw them in prison? You could not have found a less likely candidate than Saul. He hated Jesus. He persecuted Christians violently, viciously, vindictively, in an animalistic way, as I said. The Lord changed him. The Lord changed him. He can change anyone. I want to encourage you this morning, if there's someone you've got in mind as I speak in this kind of way, keep praying for them. Keep witnessing to them. Keep loving them. Keep setting an example for them. Keep inviting them to church or other things. Keep testifying to them.
But most importantly, keep asking that God will change him, because he can. There's a couple of lovely verses that Paul wrote about himself many years after this event. But he's really writing about what happened to him on this day. It comes from 1 Timothy 1. This is what he wrote. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Ollie actually mentioned it earlier on in the service. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. When Paul says that he was the worst of sinners, he wasn't showing false humility. He knew the power of God. He knew the grace and love of God and the change that he'd made in his life. And his life did change. From that moment on, he had a different purpose. He had different goals. He had different motivations. He had a different direction. God changed him. Every Christian in here is changed. If you're not a Christian, he can change you. Ask him. But he will also continue to change us as we carry on in the Christian life, making us more and more like Jesus. He can change even the most unlikely. Keep praying for those that are in your heart and head at this moment. So firstly, God changes us. Secondly, lastly, much more quickly, God gives us family. Now, you may not have thought of that point uh, through this, but I, I think it's here and it's important. Christians are family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're united together in Jesus. Those two words, in Christ, happen all the way through Paul's writings in the New Testament. And I think it's because of this passage here, what happened to him. For Paul, the greatest privilege a Christian has is that we're in Christ. It's not just that we're followers of Christ, we're in Christ. We're united to Jesus. And he got it from here. Look again to what Jesus said to him on the road in verse 4. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. As I said before, Saul had never personally persecuted Jesus. He'd been persecuting Christians. But so close is the relationship between the good shepherd and his sheep that if you persecute Jesus' followers, you persecute Jesus himself. The reverse is also true. If we love Jesus' followers, we love Jesus himself. During his road to Damascus experience, Saul would have found he had a saviour and he also would have found he had a family. And, and those two things are linked because the way you treat the family is the way you treat the saviour. And he would have seen these things both to his shame and to his joy. To his shame, he'd just, been found, he'd just found out that as he'd been persecuting Christians, he'd been persecuting Jesus. But he would also have found this to his joy. I love the moment in this section when Ananias comes to Saul. And Ananias would have been the first Christian voice that Saul heard after all that Saul had done. And, and did you notice what happened? Verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. He touches him and calls him brother. Human touch and being treated as part of the family is what Saul received after what he'd done. That would have meant so much to him. God gives us family when we are his. We have people to touch us and to call us brother and sister. 
And we have the privilege and the responsibility of doing that to others. Saul had been the enemy. He'd been unworthy. He'd been awful. But the Lord had changed him and now had given him a family, made him part of the family. Same for us. It's Ananias, I take it, that at the end of these verses gives him food, baptizes him, helps him get back to full strength. He treats him as family, despite what Saul had done in his earlier life. You're never alone as a Christian. You're brought into the family of God. You may not be married, or you may have a marriage which is not good and you feel alone. You may have all our different circumstances, but we're never alone as a Christian. You have family, people to love and to live life with, and with all the blessings and responsibilities that that brings. So let me ask you this morning, as you think about your Christian family, who are you looking out for? Who are you particularly serving at the moment, encouraging or challenging? Who are you putting yourself out for within the Christian family? And I ask it that way because the other way to ask the question is the one we, we kind of do much more often and much more automatically. Who's doing these things for me? But we can't control what other people are doing, but we can control what we do. Who, who are you doing it for? Who am I doing it for? It's our privilege and responsibility to treat each other in that way. As Christians, we're to live for the good of our brothers and sisters, putting their preferences and well-being before our own, putting ourselves out for their good, because they're family. I've got to wrap it up. What a day for Saul. What a day for Saul. The literal road to Damascus experience. So big that it's become part of the language in human experience down through the years. This was the change he needed. This change didn't lead to an easy life for Paul, but it led to eternal life for Paul. This life didn't lead to physical riches and creature comforts for Paul, but it led to contentment for Paul. And that's because it led to Jesus. God gave Paul on this day a saviour Jesus and gave him a family. You and I have the same wonderful blessings. We may not have the road to Damascus experience, but it doesn't matter how it happens, it matter, matters what happens. We receive the same blessings. Let me finish by reading those verses that uh, Paul, many years later, wrote about this first day from 1 Timothy 1. And I pray that it would be what we think as well. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever.